Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about consent, a crucial, foundational American concept. I'm planning to release this inappropriate conversation in time for July 4th, Independence Day, this year in the United States. And 2016 marks the 240th anniversary of the reason that we celebrate Independence Day. It's actually the uh, completion and the presentation of the Declaration of Independence. So to observe that, before I get into a couple of different topics in this inappropriate conversations show, I want to begin with the second paragraph of that Declaration of Independence, and just share a few of the sentences. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of those ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem the most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate. The governance long established shall not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, invinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government, and to provide new guards for their future security. We'll come back to some of this material a little bit later, looking at the concept of the consent of the governed, because I'm going to make an argument in this particular show that there are two crucial American concepts that we're not doing a very good job of acknowledging today. I wouldn't have to struggle very hard at all to find a right-wing conservative American Christian questioning whether consent is an American idea at all or an acceptable idea at all. In fact, before the show's over, I'll share some words from one such American Christian. The other problem that I'm having, though, and I've been documenting this for about a year and a half now on Inappropriate Conversations shows, is our problem as a country with segregation. Just in calendar year 2015 alone, I looked at the issue in episodes like 157, Letting Justice Roll, or in um, number 167, Speaking Truth to Power. And these, of course, are not the first times and probably won't be the last times that I talk about the evils of segregation in our society. And if you take a look at the things that have just been happening here lately in Great Britain related to the Brexit vote, where an argument can be made, a fairly strong and compelling argument, that xenophobia and isolationism and even racism was a very palpable force inside the people who voted to leave, segregation is not just a uniquely American problem. But I want to look at two issues. One of them, a problem that we need to be working harder to strive to solve in segregation, and another one that the resistance to, in the form of consent, is positively un-American. We ought to be bracing consent. It's right here in founding documents that we'll be celebrating on the 240th birthday of our nation this weekend. But first, Inappropriate Conversations has not taken any opportunity to publicly deal with things that have happened elsewhere in current events. And as I've spoken before, I'm not a big fan of speaking into current events. Had I shared some thoughts on the podcast about two or three weeks ago, I would have gotten a lot of information wrong. I either would have had to have left huge parts out and not made any real commentary, or I would have had to jump to conclusions. And we've seen a lot of people who wanted to be the first to speak, jumping very publicly to, con to conclusions, have gotten some things wrong. But when you look at the situation that happened with the murders in Orlando, uh, 50 people dead, 49 plus the shooter, 53 more injured, some of them very seriously. 
when you look at that situation, there may be things we don't know, still don't know, and potentially may never really know about what was going on in the mind of that shooter and whether the uh, he had any sort of support that hasn't yet been identified. It seems that his wife, though aware of what he was doing at the time he was doing it, may have found out too late. She may have found out when he was already in the act of committing those murders. His parents seem genuinely surprised, but there could have been some other supply line. It seems too soon to suggest that there clearly was no direct command and control line between ISIS or any other foreign force and this individual. And though he might claim to have been inspired by them, that certainly now looks, at the time I'm doing this recording, very late June in 2016, seems like a convenient cover, a subterfuge, something to hide his real intent. The evidence certainly isn't strong enough to make a a more clear statement of fact than that. And unfortunately, far too many Americans, particularly politically conservative Americans, have spoken as if they know way more than the FBI does, which is crazy because they're certainly not looking at anywhere near the amount of evidence that the FBI is. No, the one thing we know for sure is that by and large, the victims, not all, but an overwhelming majority of the victims, were gay men and women at a gay nightclub. And that certainly the shooters seemed to be targeting homosexual people for that reason in particular. There may be others. It's too soon to say. We're really only three weeks into an elaborate police investigation right now, so there's a lot we don't know. But it seems to me that in the third week of this investigation, the only thing we can say for sure is that the victims of this shooting were gay. I say that's the only thing we know for sure. But I think one of our problems is that an overwhelming number of people who've spoken politically from the right side of the political spectrum, either as spokesmen on behalf of Christianity, uh, either legitimately in the form of some church folk or illegitimately in the form of some hate groups like uh, Family Research Council and American Family Association and uh, Focus on the Family as well, have left out this crucial fact, or at least initially for days and days, left out the crucial fact that the people who were targeted by this crime were being targeted perhaps specifically because they were gay, lesbian, trans, bisexual, uh, or falling under the overall umbrella heading of queer people. I reacted to this angrily online, and I didn't take a lot of time to decide whether or not the people that I was angry with were simply confused or didn't have all the facts, because I think that's incredibly disingenuous. It was obvious from the very first news reports that the location of this attack and the victims who were targeted were being targeted for a very specific reason. And yet, for days after the event, it was hard to find anybody on the right side of the political spectrum who could make an unqualified statement that this was happening, in part because it would have required them to make the next statement that this was happening and this was wrong. And if you've spent a lot of time, say as a uh, extreme right-wing Christian pastor, saying that we should round these people up and put them in concentration camps, or that the Bible clearly says they should be put to death, it's a little bit, well, there's got to be a lot of cognitive dissonance between saying that this particular set of killings was wrong, when on the other hand, you have perhaps arguably spent a huge chunk of your lifetime basically saying that a killing like this was somehow necessary, or even God-ordained. I'm going to set all that aside for now. Uh, because I think it's easy to point out it and call it wrong. I've had less success, though, trying to persuade some people who are both politically conservative and Christian friends that the unwillingness of people to identify the targets of this crime as gay was, well, a real serious act of hypocrisy. Such is the ability of some folks to maintain two conflicting ideas in their head that they can't connect the dots even when the dots seem incredibly obvious. So let me just walk us through a quick example, and then I'll get into the main topic of this show, focusing more on consent than on you know crimes against a minority group. And I guess to do so, I need to tell a story. Let's imagine that there's an incredibly successful church, maybe even a mega church, in one of the largest cities in our country. So let's say instead of looking at Los Angeles proper as a city, we look more like to Orange County and still talk about the standard metropolitan statistical area of greater Los Angeles, or perhaps more broadly of Southern California, and that somehow, uh, out of nowhere, completely unexpected to anybody except maybe a few people who knew the shooter directly, somebody went in 
armed to the teeth with a lot of ammunition and automatic weapons, and shot at least a hundred people inside that megachurch on, uh, say, a Fourth of July weekend, say, uh, July third, the Sunday before the holiday. And let's take it even a step further and say that this person has easily been identified through friends or other interviews as being what we might describe as as an angry atheist. And that this person, this suspect, was had angrily declared that he hated patriotic worship services in particular. And that even though this person might not necessarily have a beef against all Christians or all Christianity, he suggested publicly enough that people could testify that they heard him say it, that he was going to separate church and state this Sunday. People were going to learn a lesson. He was going to separate church and state on this particular Sunday. And then he turns around, walks into a church, shoots 100 people. Now, what if Jerry Brown, current governor of the state of California, and others simply refused to acknowledge or even consider the possibility this was a crime directed at Christians? What if they acted as if this whole question of whether Christians were targeted was a silly, pointless question, a divisive question. What's most important here is that um, somebody has attacked a bunch of innocent people and that this somebody is part of some sort of violent, angry atheist group. You see, I've heard Jerry Brown described as being a quiet Catholic. So he would fall on the Christian side of whatever spectrum you wanted to draw, but maybe closer to the middle, less of of a radical right point of view, uh, more of a, a quiet Democrat, perhaps, or even a um, pragmatic liberal, but certainly somebody who would, on his own steam, you'd think have a reason to decry violence against Christians. But how would we react if this individual, uh, the governor, but also the entire Democratic representation in Congress from the state of California and national political candidates, especially on the Democrat side of the fence. What if Hillary Rodham Clinton just flatly refused to acknowledge that this crime had anything to do with Christianity and that it was a, it was a hashtag all Americans situation, not targeting a church. It was a coincidence maybe, or, or even, you know, we're not going to dwell on that until more research is done. The FBI has to get in there and ascertain, did the shooter know he was even in a church? Maybe he was confused and he thought he was at a graduation ceremony and his real beef is against graduating high school seniors or something of that along those lines. And this seems on one level completely outrageous because I'm making these claims and instead of the victims of the crime being a group of people that are, you know, in some ways always been sort of ignored by society, where a, a large group of politically active Christians, for example, speak of them as if they don't exist or should not exist or ought to be forced to pretend that they don't exist. But if instead of talking about a minority group, I'm actually talking about one of the largest purpose-driven churches in our entire country a best-selling author pastoring that church, a huge flock, so to speak, and still to have the audacity to say that this doesn't have anything to do with Christians, it's just about innocent lives. Paul Ryan couldn't speak about anything more detailed than innocent lives, which made me wonder, based on other things that he and his political comrades have spoken publicly in just the last, say, 12 months, if he's lying about his question of the perceived innocence of those people. Has he muttered words in his political career like abomination before. And if those words mean to him what he wants it to mean to the people who hear him speak, can he really make a claim about innocent lives? Or is he just pretending that they weren't really Christian? Or in this case, they weren't really gay. You see, a couple things have happened since I began planning to do this recording, which I intend to release very early in July. One is we hit the anniversary of the same-sex marriage ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court. I woke up yesterday on Sunday morning with Facebook putting something up to remind me that that happened. And this is a function of Facebook that I actually don't mind. It doesn't bother me. I I rarely share those Facebook memory posts that uh, are delivered to me by their algorithm and not by myself or by my friends. But it gave me the opportunity to look and read back on the comments that were made that very day on the Friday that the ruling was announced. And looking through, it just kind of takes me back through the mental reaction, the apocalyptic visions of some of my Christian friends who were convinced that this was a sign of the end of the world, or at the very least, a slap in the face and a quote-unquote threat to their heterosexual marriage. Well, here we are one year later, 
And that young woman, friend of the family, is still married to her husband and showing no signs of getting a divorce anytime soon, so clearly the threat to her marriage, as I told her a year ago, was a manufactured persecution that had no basis in reality. And then today, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court has issued another ruling, very late in June, striking down the perhaps uh, egregious and unnecessary abortion restrictions that were enacted in Texas and have been copycatted in other states since then. So there's a lot of talk you're going to hear about innocent lives where I think we know kind of who Paul Ryan thinks is innocent and who he doesn't think is innocent. From the state of Ohio, Rob Portman, who has a gay son, at least according to the articles that I read, he also had nothing to say in his initial response to this attack about the victims of the attack and the fact that gay people were being targeted. Quoting Portman, Praying for the victims and families of this horrific terror attack in Orlando. He posted that to Twitter 12 hours after the attack, which probably is an appropriate amount of time to comment, especially if for six or eight hours of that time he was asleep. Then more than five hours later, not on Twitter this time, but Facebook, Portman wrote, Jane and I extend our condolences to the victims and the families impacted by this horrific attack in Orlando. Violence and hate have no place in our society. We must all roundly condemn this murderous act, which appears to have been targeted at individuals because of who they are. I read an article on the New Civil Rights Movement website or Facebook page by David Badish, and he notes here that Portman almost mentioned LGBT people in that post. He almost did it. He almost acknowledged that what happened there could have happened to his own gay son. He just couldn't quite pull it off. Others listed in this article who fell far short of acknowledging not just the real need of people who had been targeted to know that as the Attorney General later did, that they were surrounded and the full force of United States law enforcement was behind them and was intent upon protecting them. Instead, this list of people were also guilty of trying to pretend that these folks didn't exist or weren't who they said they were or who they were was unimportant to the crime. Rand Paul, Mitch McConnell, Lamar Alexander, John McCain, Tim Scott, Tim Scott's post had three praying hand emoticons on Twitter, I believe. In his statement, he was praying for the victims and their families, which raises a question in my mind about whether he even understands who he's praying for. These may have been, in other words, the same people that he was praying would never get equal protection under the law or had no business in his church or whatever. It just calls, it calls to mind the question because of the incomplete information. And it's not like I'm trolling through the history of Scott's posts. These are things he put out publicly to make a public statement intending for people to read them, people like me. Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, recent GOP presidential candidates, are exceptions. But to be fair, Cruz buried his reference to LGBT people in a laundry list of other American factors, including naming the gay and lesbian community only after naming, quote, each and every one of us in the context of being targets of ISIS. In other words, while going through uh, Americans and our brave soldiers and law enforcement and our way of life, he got to each and every one of us before he could stomach saying the words, the gay and lesbian community. So, am I mad about it? You bet I am. Yeah, some of them are trucking back their insensitivity here in the days that came soon after. It was with much less fanfare that Florida Governor Rick Scott finally, begrudgingly it seems, acknowledged that the mass shooting was an attack on, quote, the gays, unquote. But let me go back to my original sort of hypothetical. Let's say that this was state of California. So instead of Republican Governor Rick Scott, we have Democrat Governor Jerry Brown, who after refusing uh, in repeated interview questions to acknowledge that the targets in the hypothetical crime I described were Christians. He came along a day or so later and said, yeah, you know, I guess so. It, it, yeah, it, was a, it was an attack on the Jesus people. You know, the outrage would be overwhelming. It wouldn't surprise me if the police might have to step in to quell violent protests outside the governor's mansion in the state of California. Now, I'm not calling for or advocating violence against anybody. I would think that the situation I described in my hypothetical Orange County church would be nightmarish and completely unacceptable. And I would want not just the full force of the American law enforcement system, including the FBI, to step in and do something about it, and to step in and try to come up with 
creative, constitutional ways of making sure that this kind of thing never happens again. But I also would be just as outraged and just as much in the face of any politician from any political persuasion who refused to acknowledge that the victims in the case were Christians. And that anger is what is channeled through me and perhaps upset some of my friends when I present them with the very simple and obvious problem of their hypocrisy for refusing to accept and acknowledge immediately or damn close to immediately that these were crimes in Orlando targeted against LGBTQ people. Now, this particular Inappropriate Conversations episode is going to contain explicit language. I know that going in because, frankly, it's going to contain explicit language, if no other reason than due to our different drummer. So if explicit language is not your thing, you've been warned. Even before we get to the different drummer, though, there's likely to be explicit language. In fact, there's likely to be explicit language in the next five seconds. Because here's the issue. One year ago today, I had friends who... Stop following the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page. I have people in my family who refuse to speak of, for, or about any of this stuff and might even deny to this very day a simple truth that when the Supreme Court issued their ruling, they freaked the fuck out. They lost their shit completely. And the the problem with that is that whatever anger they may have been willing to channel toward a decision to give equal rights and to respect the dignity of people who are different from them, uh, which is, again, one of the kind of principles of our country, that we're able to bring together people from such uh, a disparate you know, set of experiences, philosophies, nationalities, and form them into one nation, a nation built uh, on and from immigrants, that they would turn around later and refuse to acknowledge that a crime was even committed against those same people. But that's not what I want to talk about today. I don't want to forget that the real subject here is two-part. One is segregation, which will be a bridge from this Orlando intro into the topic. And the other one is consent. And consent would have been the headline news for this story if I did nothing more than focus on the Stanford sexual assault, the rape case that got Brock Turner, a student at the university at the time, a conviction with perhaps one of the lightest, disproportionately lightest sentences in the history of rape cases, which is saying something, because in many cases, rape cases don't even go to trial in the first place. This one did go to trial. The evidence was overwhelming. Conviction was granted, and the judge stepped in, and not wanting to ruin the life of a young man, because the judge, perhaps in his mind, had some doubts about whether uh, the story of consent was real or legitimate, Refuse to refuse to let the full force of the law fall upon the person who committed the crime. By all accounts, though, including two eyewitnesses, there is no question that the victim in that case did not consent, and it's beyond logic and reason to suggest that she would have consented to what was going on. Pine needles being stuffed into her vagina by somebody who was fingering her while unconscious behind a dumpster. Hey, that's every little girl's dream, isn't it? Perhaps it is, according to a judge in California, and certainly to Brock Turner and his family members. But the real common denominator, the glue holding these ideas together, is this concept of segregation. Now, there may be some people who heard my hypothetical church story saying, hey, well, this is different because that was a nightclub where people were drinking and dancing and partying and doing Lord knows what else. And this church thing was a, was something that was a, a violent attack inside a sanctuary. But I would ask us to think of the definition of sanctuary just a little bit differently. Not differently in a wrong way, but actually differently in a more of an originalist way, more of an accurate way. You might say I'm referring to sanctuary the way I did a year ago in the month of June. Uh, Walk the Earth number 27, asking the question whether sanctuary means the same thing today as the center of Christian worship has in the past. It's easy to get people to agree that sanctuary, conceptually, is referring to the center of Christian worship. What I'm saying, though, is that sanctuary referred in the past to more than just that. That somebody who was a refugee, for example, I talk about a controversial hot topic, somebody who was a refugee might come to the church or the cathedral and seek sanctuary inside there where uh, that person would not be arrested because the church was considered to be outside the jurisdiction of either the military or traditional law enforcement. That kind of sanctuary, a safe space where people with a common set of experiences, characteristics, or beliefs 
come together to provide each other support and unity, a union, a communion of sorts, if you will. And in that sense, you can certainly make a claim that this Pulse nightclub in Orlando, if not certainly a sanctuary, obviously and arguably a sanctuary in the minds of those people, which is why it made it easy for somebody to come in and target such a large group of people with a common background at the same time, with common characteristics, common beliefs, common experiences at the same time. Really, in many ways, sanctuary works to describe both of those concepts. But the thing that's a little bit different here is that this Pulse nightclub scenario also speaks somewhat to segregation. It isn't that a bunch of people in a megachurch in Orange County, California, are stuck being together in that ornate environment uh, with a fairly large treasure chest of donations, enough to uh, support political action committees, I would I would imagine, at least in the hypothetical me- megachurch in my mind. They're not stuck there as the best they can do. They're not hiding from the world in that, in that sense of it, uh, because they probably have a tremendous amount of privilege and power. The Pulse nightclub is slightly different in that those people might be doing the best they can do in the, in the circumstances and maybe couldn't congregate quite so freely just anywhere else. That megachurch could have worship in the park on almost any given Sunday with no consequences and no issues. I don't know that the same could be said for bringing all the people out of the gay nightclub into the park without at least drawing protesters. There are a couple of sayings I put on my personal Facebook page, both of which seem somewhat appropriate right now. One of them is uh, that discrimination is a lifestyle choice that goes against my religious beliefs. Uh, Flipping on its head the attacks that people have made in pretty much my entire lifetime against uh, LGBTQ people. But the other one is, when you build bridges, you are misunderstood by both sides. And I think that part of the reason that that's a true and valid statement is that building bridges is inherently the enemy of segregation. It is something that is done to stand up to and fight against the growing movement, not just in America, but apparently in the world, certainly in England right now, to keep people separated from each other based on things like their religious beliefs or their ethnic background or their nationality or perhaps their sexual preference. So one of the things that I mourn is not that people who are gay and lesbian have a safe space to call their own, a sanctuary, if you will. But one of the things I mourn is that that sanctuary is uniquely separate, that there are so many people who don't feel as free to be themselves anywhere else. You know, one of the things you'll hear in the church all the time is that you should go out and share your faith. You should go out and be honest about who you are with the world, not to hide the things God has done for, with, through, and about you from other people. That's a very different situation, though, than what those same people in this hypothetical Orange County, Southern California church might say to the people who were gunned down in Orlando, or their friends or their other loved ones. The message seems to be back in the closet with you guys. And back in the closet is an inherently segregating notion. A year ago, around this time, Speaking Truth to Power, I believe, was what I called that particular Inappropriate Conversations episode. And it was about the way certain people in a white suburb of Dallas, Texas, freaked out because an after-school party suddenly included a lot of non-white kids. And one parent assaulted a teenage girl. Police were called in. One police officer lost first control of his temper, uh, respect for the badge, his own self-respect for the badge, did his job so poorly he got himself fired. By striking out violently with what seems to be, I would say, a very inadequate amount of information. Because I don't think any of the police on the scene at the time really realized that what they actually had been called to do, regardless of false allocations about drugs because nobody was arrested for drugs, or um, misunderstanding the nature of the fight that they were being called to break up, they really were actually called in there by some folks to be an enforcement of a segregationist policy that, quote-unquote, these people didn't belong in, quote-unquote, my neighborhood. This is an American blight. It has been a cancer in our country for my entire lifetime. And we're not doing as much now about correcting that issue as we had in, say, the first decade of my life. When I was, say, between the ages of 1 and 13, our society was at least addressing the issue of segregation and the problems posed by it. 
But in the last couple of decades, I've seen nothing but a move to resegregate our country. I'd make an argument. I know the stats in front of me, but I'd make an argument that our public school system is more segregated now than perhaps it ever was, even going back to the time of Brown versus Board of Education. That's probably not true. It seems implausible that that was the case. But let's just say that in 1977, we probably had more racial integration in the public school system in America than we do now. Or it wouldn't surprise me if that's an accurate claim because of white flight to charter schools, white flight to public schools, and the growing movement toward homeschooling. And I don't want to tar homeschoolers with the same brush that not all of them are racists who would prefer to educate their kids at home and by themselves than to risk them rubbing elbows with any of, quote-unquote, those people. But I refuse to believe that segregation has nothing to do with the homeschooling movement in any home, anywhere in this country, under any circumstances. A lot of times it's dressed up as as a religious freedom issue and a desire to raise our kids in a Christian way. But in many cases, you could replace the word Christian with white, and you could come up with almost exactly the same meaning. Segregation is one of our biggest problems. But our second biggest problem, in my opinion, if not the first biggest problem, is our refusal to acknowledge the significance of consent. Consent as a concept is vital. Let me introduce the reason why I wanted to speak about consent. Then we'll hit our different drummer, because our different drummer today is also going to speak about consent. And I'm going to allow her to do that in her own words. I was given an article, probably through social media, I can't speak to whether it was Facebook or Twitter, from a pastor in Ohio called Reggie Osborne, maybe Reggie Osborne II, a Baptist pastor, a preaching pastor, as he's described it on an About You page that I've seen. What I got was an article, and the article of reggieosborne.com slash writing slash she only said yes once. The gist of this article is a full-on attack against the concept of consent as some sort of problem in our society that we need to solve. Now, maybe before I share this, I need to restate a few things. I've been happily married for coming up on 30 years now. I've been in a stable relationship with the same woman. We're in our fourth decade now. I've had one sexual relationship in this lifetime. So when he's talking about the importance of saying yes to his wife and what that meant to him, I'm there with him. In fact, I'm there with him with a lot more years behind me than he's got behind him at the time that this article was recently published. Let me let him speak in his own words, and then I'll share my reaction and even share a little bit about his reaction to similar comments he got online. These are Osborne's words, talking about the moment when he sort of, let's say he sort of kissed the bride, the moment of being married. And in that moment, Osborne says, on that stage when we were married, my wife said yes to me. Before that moment, the answer had always been no. No in my heart and no in hers. No in parked cars, in movie theaters, in empty living rooms. No to all of those emotions and desires that threatened to sweep away young people in love. The answer had always been no. Not anymore. On July 28th, 2001, the answer we gave each other before God and everyone was yes. Yes until the day we die. Yes, I could kiss her. Yes, I could sleep with her. Yes, I could steal glances of her in the shower because I think she looks great even after five kids. She said yes to me forever. I wasn't asking for a one-night stand or permission to touch her after a party. I was asking for forever And that's what she gave me. That's what I gave her. She never had to say it again. If it sounds like I bold-faced those words, she never had to say it again, it's because Osborne bold-faced those words on his blog post. She never had to say it again. She said yes, only once. She meant it to last. I meant it to last. It has lasted 14 years. It will remain in effect until death parts us. Last October, he goes on to write, in the New York Times, a published article described what sex education is like for 10th graders now in San Francisco. A new law requires the teachers give lessons on something called, quote, affirmative consent, unquote. These children are taught to ask for consent at every point in a sexual encounter. Do you want to kiss her? Ask for consent. Do you want to touch her breasts? Ask for consent again. Do you want to take her clothes off? Ask for consent again. Do you want to penetrate? Ask for consent again. If that's too graphic for you, just remember, this is 10th grade material. 
If it makes you uncomfortable, then just imagine being one of the 15-year-old kids in that classroom who are hearing those words and many more, far more graphic, with other boys and girls their own age, the same boys and girls they used to finger paint with in kindergarten. I can't help but to wonder whether finger paint wasn't chosen as an intentional analogy to another term that you often hear used, term I would have heard used as a 10th grader when I was in that early age of high school. Is finger paint meant by him to be some sort of sly winking analogy to the term finger bang? Well, if you're going to finger bang a girl, ask for consent first. Because if you don't, you're probably no different than Brock Turner if she's unconscious and can't answer you. Or if she's telling you no and you're not listening. I got a couple of problems, at least with this article, and I was encouraged to know when I looked on the comments of at least one of the postings of this that I wasn't alone. And that, let me just begin saying that, you know, not only, on the one hand, Reggie Osborne is not my different drummer, and that's probably already clear. On the other hand, he's not some kind of a monster. He just didn't understand what he was saying. He hadn't connected the dots. He, like so many people in their, say, 40s and 50s, Kind of forget what it was like to be a 15-year-old boy. I'm not even going to say a 15-year-old boy in America. I bet I'm describing 15-year-old boys everywhere. So let me start with that. If he believes that hearing questions about whether or not a boy might ask a girl or want to ask a girl if he can touch her breasts or take her clothes off or penetrate her is off the scale and introducing concepts that this kid would never think of on his own because he's he's only 15 years old and after all 10 years ago he used to learn arts and crafts in kindergarten with the same girls in the same classroom that that he now uh, is seeing in a sexual way or might be seeing in a sexual way he used to finger paint with him how in the world could be possibly thinking about using his fingers in any other way let me tell you something about a 15 year old boy 15-year-old boy spends a ridiculous amount of his time thinking about using his fingers in just exactly those ways. There is no way a 15-year-old sex education curriculum is introducing new ideas into the head of what I might describe, for want of a better word, as a typical, avoiding normal, a typical teenage boy. For me, it wasn't 15. It was probably earlier. It was probably more like 13 or 14, and I knew for a fact I wasn't alone. I knew boys my age, and from time to time we would find ourselves in conversation. Uh, certainly by the time I was 15 years old, there weren't just girls who were coming into a figure. There were girls who, you know, later on in college, the same girls that I knew because we were friends, had not significantly changed in, the, in their secondary sexual characteristics between the ages of 15 and 20. Some girls just mature at a younger age, and believe me, boys notice. So this assumption that you can't have a frank sexual conversation with somebody at age 15 about how to respect women and what the right and wrong ways are, even if somebody says that they they are interested in letting you touch her here or look underneath there, that you've got to make sure that, that you got to make sure that you expect buyer's remorse, I guess is the way I would put it. And that's likely the concept that's going to get me to my different drummer. But before I go there, the other bigger issue and the thing I'm going to reiterate later in the show is there's something frankly monstrous about people like Donald Trump saying that it is impossible for a man to rape his wife. Once she says, I do, she is his sexually in every conceivable way. And if he wants to take her forcefully and violently, she said, I do. That's a monstrous point of view. Osborne was presented with that challenge. And he was quick to backpedal and clarify that, hey, he was never saying he was in favor of marital rape. He was actually incredulous that anybody could read his words here and come away with any sort of endorsement of marital rape. But look at his words that he's using. She only said yes once. She never had to say it again. That asking for affirmative consent is completely unacceptable. Listen, my wife and I are in a continuous, perpetual state of granting each other consent. It's not one and done. It's eternal in the sense that it's always, not eternal in the sense that it's once and forever. You've cast your lot, and hopefully you just didn't pick a monster out of the crowd. Hopefully you didn't say, I do, to somebody who's a violent sexual psychopath, because having been married, you no longer have any rights. I really don't know anybody, including people who have shared articles like this with me in the past, who believe that. I think they would all be quick to say that, no, 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 uh, you're not allowed to behave that way, and... If a wife is being sexually abused by her husband or by a woman by her partner, she absolutely positively has the right to say no. 
Meaning that she is perhaps able to say no tonight and yes again on a different night. And that's the concept that's missing in this naive article, which in my opinion was written only to attack the validity, the concept, or even the existence of consent. I would bet you that if I asked this pastor this casual question, after having read reading his articles railing about the notion that that it, it's unrealistic or, or even unacceptable for sex to be deemed as a consensual activity in the first place. But if I read the Declaration of Independence to him, he might be surprised at just how American the concept of consenting is. We consent to be governed. We absolutely and positively consent to have sex. <laughs> Nerd Hurdles, where every week, Jacob and Mandy will help you navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be afraid. But you will be. No, you won't. You will be. Nerd. This is simplysyndicated.com. I mentioned that when I woke up Sunday morning, Facebook was reminding me that this was the day, a year ago, that the Supreme Court had issued a ruling making uh, the rights of people to marry true across all 50 states, regardless of their sexual orientation, just like they had in 1967, eliminating the stipulations in many states about the race of the people getting married. And I also knew that when I woke up on Monday morning, this was going to be the day the Supreme Court was going to decide whether people in Texas would have equal access to abortion as need be, or if we would continue to pretend the ridiculous, obviously transparent, sham legislation to try to do nothing more than close clinics for the sake of closing clinics was constitutional in the light of, frankly, just about every previous Supreme Court ruling on the question of access and equal access to the right to choose an abortion. That ruling came down probably around lunchtime the same day, and the Supreme Court, once again, in almost almost a year-over-year fashion, getting to the end of their term, issuing a fairly uh, liberal, if you have a, a kind of a false dichotomy worldview where everything is either all conservative or all liberal and then there's no shades of gray in between, but issuing what might be perceived by many on the political right as a very liberal ruling on the matter. This despite the efforts of uh, U.S. senators to ensure that the Supreme Court didn't have a full slate of justices to vote on the issue because that was successful in derailing some Supreme Court rulings this particular term. It just was unsuccessful in this one. It was 5-3, meaning that no matter who you appointed to the court, it was going to be either a 6-3 to or 5-4 to majority either way. I bring up this talk about Texas being told to put things right, I guess would be the way I'd word it, from the U.S. Supreme Court, reiterating their previous rulings and kind of calling a sham a sham because of our different drummer. Our different drummer today is Nan Little Kirkpatrick. Now, in the context of abortion rights, Nan is one of the directors of Texas Equal Access Fund. That website, uh, tfund.org, has the banner headline of saying, Making Reproductive Rights a Reality. Texas Equal Access Fund provides financial assistance to low-income people who want an abortion and can't afford it. And, of course, the inability to afford an abortion in the state of Texas has been made incrementally worse by the fact that half the clinics that existed just a couple of years ago have been closed down by these laws which really have nothing to do with keeping women safe and healthy and uh, maintaining a minimum standard of health care in clinics. They do, among other things, uh, helping women pay for abortion because Medicaid does not cover abortion in the state of Texas. It also it gives them, uh, they, they are the, among the people who help shepherd and steward women in and out of clinics through what is often a gauntlet of very verbally violent and confrontational people who have the temerity to identify themselves as Christ followers while behaving in a way that doesn't look even remotely like Christ. And all their money coming from private donations, among other things that Kirkpatrick does, is help gather those donations, help engage in fundraising, publicity activities, scheduling, coordinating, things of that nature. So in the context of abortion rights, that's who Nan Little Kirkpatrick is. I first encountered her in a different capacity. I first encountered her as one of the members of the cast of the podcast Secretly Timid. I've said this before, and I probably say it again a little bit on the clip that I want to share. My first 
verbal exchange with Secretly Timid was absolutely inspired by the words of Kirkpatrick, speaking in some ways against the way privilege is wielded as a weapon in this country. And one of the many ways, of course, you see that is in segregation. Again, I mentioned earlier, a lot of what's happened to to create a racial divide in public education in this country is about people trying to exercise their privilege, whether it's presumed to be Christian privilege or simply um, an anti-government sort of perspective, pulling their kids out of public schools. And, of course, leaving behind only the people who are poor and typically minority the first encounter I had was, was Nan speaking to that issue. And so I called in to Secretly Timid. Let me share that now, and then I'll get into a little bit of biographical information. Just a little, from the perspective of SecretlyTimid.com. This first comment, we have to give a huge thank you to the ladies from Greetings from Nowhere, because we got a fan through them. And this is from Greg, and he's also um, he also liked us on Facebook, so we can interact with him directly now. Um, and this is in reference to our last episode, um, 134. Oh, so we're on 135. Did I say 136? I can't remember. Anyway, Greg we're writes, some number. <laughs> um, great show and episode. You have found a new fan, or a, however you say, I'm now a fan. That doesn't sound egocentric. I love quotes and drop them often, sometimes from philosophy or religion or movies, but usually music. I have never updated my Facebook page, though, with a quote I just heard on a podcast, Ellipses, until today. And the quote is, privilege is blind to its own existence. People with power generally know they have power, but people with privilege don't know they have privilege. Thanks for that, Nan. And he also um, um, retweeted one of our show announcements on Twitter. And so he is an awesome, awesome new listener. And thank you so much for that comment. Nan, Nan has yet another fan. I know. God <laughs> so damn Nan. God damn Nan. That should be. <laughs> God damn Nan. That's gonna be the. That's gonna be the title for this episode. It could but be I a special love it. Segment where we all just say, "God damn Nan." Why do you have so many fans? <laughs> God damn Nan fan. Um, it's absolutely a true statement. It is the first time ever that I heard a contemporaneous person, somebody that I had not met, but somebody who was saying something that I'd heard for the first time that I put that kind of quote online. I went to my Facebook page to share that, and what you would have found before then would have been quotes from people like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and William Faulkner and James Joyce. It would have been those kind of people, or, or maybe music lyrics. But this was the first time I actually took a political statement made by somebody kind of, you know, not live, but on a current podcast, and went and immediately shared that with others via my social media. The cast page of Secretly Timid, a little bit out of date, but it basically calls out that uh, Nan Little Kirkpatrick has a BA in English composition from the University of North Texas, and that at night she makes art, plays bass in a band, two bands now, get to that in a minute, threatens to put on puppet shows for her husband and never does, and reads and talks a lot about feminism. A lot. Oh, and half-heartedly maintains a blog at nanarchist.blogspot.com. Um, it might have been half-heartedly a couple of years ago when this bio page was put up at www.secretlytimid.com. It's even more half-heartedly now. The uh, nansplaining page hasn't been updated, at least as far as I can tell, in quite some time. But clearly, Texas Equal Access Fund has kept her quite busy, not just in trying to do the day-to-day -day business of trying to fund um, abortion care for people who want to choose abortion but can't afford it, uh, largely because of laws and, um, well, the impact of segregation and discrimination, among other things. But also busy with her band. She's from the band Frauen and also Little Beards. Uh, my understanding is that Little Beards is inching ever closer to putting out a first release, whether that be CD or EP, I'm not sure. Don't believe it has come out at the time of this recording, but it can't be that far away. So, once again, different drummer who could be described in multiple ways, as a performer, as a political activist, as a podcaster. If I had to pick one, I would cite her as a podcaster, because Secretly Timid is how I know, if you want to put that in air quotes, Kirkpatrick's work. And when I thought about the concept of consent, and speaking out, perhaps angrily, about this pastor, maybe this naive pastor who doesn't understand the concepts well enough to know that however good of a preaching pastor he may be, as a blogger, he missed the mark, and lots of people, not just me, called him out on it. But when I think about consent, among the other concepts that I think about are things that have been shared on Secretly Timid, more than once, in fact, 
by Kirkpatrick. And I want to share one of those right now. In a conversation earlier this year, uh, in the springtime or late, late winter, where Kirkpatrick was talking with the other people on the show about the backlash, I want to put it in, from Kim Kardashian showing a little skin online and whether or not she was engaging in inappropriate behavior. Uh, Kirkpatrick turned that on its head, perhaps not necessarily wanting to be a vocal, outspoken defender of anything Kardashian, but I think getting the difference of opinion exactly right here and stick with me through this five or six minute post because at the very end she brings us right back to the concept of, a, of consent and i would even say consent in the extreme if you want to send your naked picture that's fine if you don't that's fine i don't give it my, my issue with this though is that they're taking all of the stuff that is a problem and putting it all the blame on the absolute wrong person like, and also, men have been sexually exploiting and extorting things from women since way before there was fucking social media or cell phones or the ability to electronically send nudes to each other. I mean, threatening, like, sexually exploiting, like, and extorting things from women by threatening to, like, spread rumors. Like, rumor spreading was, like, a, a plot device in the sitcoms that I watched growing up. That's really good, Brian. That should be the picture that comes with this. Um, it's a picture of Jesus and it says sin nudes and he's got his arms outstretched. Um, but like, so that was a plot device in sitcoms when I was growing up before anyone had fucking smartphones or could text or take pictures and send them electronically. We didn't even fucking have email. So like, how is that Kim Kardashian's fault? Like, I don't even know. Also, so the word empowered can just die in a fire when you're talking about other people's empowerment. You cannot empower other people. End of discussion. Like, if I say something is empowering for me, you cannot either, you cannot make that so and you cannot make that unso. So like, when these women are like, she needs to be empowering other women, like, the only way that we can like, we can only create an environment where people can feel empowered, but we can't empower other people. And being empowered, the act of being empowered is, but you can be inspired by other people. Sure. And you know what has hurt women sexually more than anything is sexual repression. I mean, I, I cannot, I will never forget. And I brought it up on the show before moving to us from a big city to a small town where all the girls were raised in these really repressive religions like Pentecostal and Baptist. And they were all taught that their genitalia was gross and that, you know, and male supremacy in the sex act and that women shouldn't enjoy sex and it's not going to be pleasurable for you. And it's just something that you do to make men happy and you should stay covered up and, and you know, your sexuality is only for your special partner. But meanwhile, men are taught to just get it however they can. And that attitude, I was raised in a much more open-minded situation and I always believed in my own sexual empowerment. I always believed that sex was going to be good for me first and foremost and I was going to do what I wanted sexually and guess what I've never been sexually exploited <laughs> and I'm not saying that the sexual exploitation of women is their own fault I'm saying that the repressive attitudes leave women with no defenses because they don't know that they can say no they don't know that they can do what they want they can't express their sexuality in a way that's pleasurable for them because they're going to get this fucking reaction this is what hurts women we have, we have hundreds of years of the presentation of the female body for the male gaze, and that's fine. And then now we have women taking pictures of themselves and, and enjoying their own bodies, and it's vanity, narcissism, harmful, horrible. It's, uh, I, I saw something on, uh, I saw something in respond, responding to this that was basically like, you take, you take it, you paint, you know, Renaissance painter paints a naked woman, and calls it something flowery and beautiful. It's great. They paint a naked woman holding a mirror, and it, and the title of the painting is Vanity, right? Right. Because if it's, if it's for herself, it's bad. It's uh, yeah, it's terrible. And self sexualization, like, uh, what the fuck even is that? that so I is, think like, maybe they meant self exploitation. But you can't exploit yourself. Yeah, you, you can totally exploit yourself. How do you exploit yourself? By posting a naked photo to a follower. But how is that inherently exploitative? If you are doing it freely of your own free will, if you take a picture of yourself and you post it on the internet, how are you exploiting yourself? Like, well, I mean, I think her whole career is on... If we're led to believe that, that she and Ray J conspired to release that photo or that video, that's... 
But that's not exploitation. You can't exploit yourself. What is exploitation then? <laughs> Why do I have this? I, I think, well, I think you have this thought because we do automatically assume that women can't be sexually empowered. Oh, they have not, to be. I don't think that at all. No, but I mean, I think underlying, because exploitation isn't, I'm, I'm going exploitation to look up isn't even always sexual. Like if I steal your labor and exploit it for my own purposes, that's exploitation. Labia? Uh, what? The action, okay, exploitation, <laughs> the action or fact of treating someone unfairly in order to benefit from their work. So how can you uh, treat yourself unfairly? Well, she took quite a... But I think that's... A, but I, think, <laughs> I, but like, I, think I don't want to finish that same But I think that's the thing is that exploitation has been imbued with these properties because yeah. of sexism and misogyny. So there's this automatic thought that anytime a woman is being sexualized, she's also being exploited. But that's just not true because women can have sexual power. Women can have sexual power. We can have sexual control. Look, I mean, I literally have had a man's penis inside of me and said, you know what? I have stopped being into this. I don't want to do this anymore. You need to get off me and we need to put our clothes back on. And he said, okay. And we stopped because, you know, I was empowered enough to say, you know what? No longer working for me. And I, and I, and, and I was lucky. I was very lucky that I was with a person who was able to say, you know what? Okay. You said stop. I'm going to stop because that's not always everybody's experience. But, like women can be sexually empowered, but we don't give them the tools because we do shit like this, where we blame them for their own. Like we, anytime a woman presents herself, like you know Matt said, anytime a woman presents herself as like enjoying her sexuality or her body, it's some terrible, awful thing, and she's doing something terrible and awful. But when a man exploits her body, enjoys it for his own purposes, I mean fuck, you know, like, I'll never forget my friend being like, I have to let my older boyfriend have anal sex with me because it's not really sex, and so I'm still a virgin, but he gets to get what he wants because men are so sexual, and he'll just leave me if he doesn't get what he wants, and I'm just like, oh my god, what fucking world is this? It's not only true that consent is a continuous process of saying yes over and over again. In Anne's example there, it's also possible that consent can be no, even at the exact most inconvenient moment. I wonder what the pastor Osborne would say about this particular story being shared by Kirkpatrick. Could he get past the unmarried people having sex side of the story to get around to what his real core beliefs are? Would he overcome his prejudices or would his prejudices lead him to say she shouldn't have been able to say no, she got what she deserved, she put herself in that situation? I think he's got it 100% wrong. I think that both people in a sexual relationship should be afforded the dignity and the respect of at any point in that being able to check in or check out and to suggest that someone's desire to no longer be in a sexual situation cannot be respected, whether that be based on the nature of consent in the minds of some people being a one-time thing that's binding for perhaps all eternity, or whether or not it be a matter of uh, somebody getting what they deserve, or perhaps a patriarchal and sort of uh, misogynistic notion that the woman can say yes or no, but once she's made her choice, she's stuck, but the man can change his mind any time, just has to get off, just a dismount kind of a situation for him. No, I think I think Kirkpatrick has it exactly right. That doesn't necessarily mean that Osborne has it exactly wrong. But it was wrong enough to raise concerns for me and to remind me that I need to keep talking about consent with Christian people because far too many Christians in America today just don't get it. And far too many of them don't get it because their pastors don't get it. And many of them who would consider themselves to be patriotic, flag-waving Americans don't even understand that consent is a part of our original Declaration of Independence. We told the British to get off of us in the middle of their colonization of us when they felt they had every right to see this colony thing all the way through to its explosive conclusion. We took our rights as a nation to expel them violently if need be. That's what we mean, as Americans, by the concept of consent. This is going to be one of those podcasts that comes to an end through the concluding music, through the thanks for listening, and on the other side, there'll still be four or five minutes of show left. I want to share one more clip, a humorous clip, from Secretly Timid. I realize I've shared two already, but one of them was very much a house-cleaning, read-the-reader mailbag kind of a moment in the show. Just a moment that, you know, I got to speak into through my words. 
And the later one was a very serious discussion on a serious current events topic. I at least want them to to be able to share the joy of their friendship with each other in a humorous sort of exchange. But this is an explicit language show, and I guarantee it'll be explicit language all the way through to the last post-theme music segment in this particular Inappropriate Conversations. If you'd like to add some dialogue to the conversation that we're having here, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. I have Facebook pages for both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth. The one for Inappropriate Conversations is listed as a cause. On Twitter, I'm at IC underscore Greg. You can listen to the show, of course, at the website at inappropriateconversations.org, at iTunes and other ways that you catch podcasts, and uh, Stitcher. Stitcher Smart Radio is a good way to listen on the go. For SoundCloud, I'm not putting current shows up there. I've gone in the opposite direction, going back to the very beginning of Inappropriate Conversations and sharing small, some smaller than others, clips of all the past shows to give a sense of what that particular episode was about. I'm into the hundreds now, which is an encouraging sign since I've been doing this for more than a year. At some point, I will catch up to current Inappropriate Conversations podcasts, and we'll see if I've got the wherewithal to post just a clip uh, on a show that's only been very recently recorded and edited. I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. In the meantime, though, thanks for listening. ever called somebody the wrong name in bed no but i don't usually use names in bed i like it, okay so occasionally i'll toss out the name thing just to make them feel like real special and shit but i had to really think about it for that to happen so normally i'm not really using names so it's very unlikely that i would use the wrong stallion name. or <laughs> whatever like, i don't know i read somewhere that guys like that i don't know what do you say you're like oh yeah fuck me fuck me Fuck me hard. What do I say in bed? I, I don't think I don't think Sean would like for me. To John is not pretending to make that voice. Here. He's actually getting fucked right now. That is what John sounds like in bed. I have actually done that. I once. like dirty talk though. I, I like it. I'm getting I'm getting better at it. I'm getting better at it. Because your boyfriend likes it, but you're yes. not a big fan. I'm well, I don't want to say I'm not a big fan. I just don't know. I get embarrassed. Like, I don't know what to say, and it takes me out of the mood. You just, so I'm like, like, I'm supposed okay, to talk? Okay, there's this episode of Sex and the City where Charlotte's like, you know, you just say, like, yeah, fucker, like that, harder, <laughs> fucker. Like, just, you know, I, I once, um, one time Sean and I were trading dirty text messages. Well, I texted him something dirty, and he texted me something really let downy. And, um, I was like, look, sexting is not hard. Just take the words, boobs, butt, Pussy, cock, string them together, like throw in maybe the word fuck. I mean, you know, just take a bunch of dirty words, put them in a hat, jumble them up, type them out. There you go. Sexting. I used to be so good at it. I'm not good at it anymore. <laughs> like not with, not with Jimmy, but like my other relationships I were because I was drunk and I just didn't give a shit because I was mm. horny and drunk and I wanted somebody to come over. So it'd be like the most. <laughs> yeah. Like embarrassing things the next day. How do you spell that? <laughs> that was kind of sexy when you made that noise. But now, <laughs> but now, like Jimmy will instigate. I'm like, I just don't know what to say. I don't. It's not that I'm embarrassed with sex. It's just kind of like, 
you know, like when you're with somebody for a while and it's just kind of like, I just don't, I don't even know what I'm trying to say right now. The hard thing it's about, weird. Well, like and, try to keep it up because there's no mysteries, well, you know? And the hard thing about sexting, but see, that's where the work comes in. You've got to work at it. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, so like what I finally told Sean was this, like, look, when I send you a sext, let's, it's very likely, odds are very high that you're not in a sexy situation at the moment, you know? True. So you're maybe not thinking about sex. You weren't really hot for it. And, to, and I send you the sex. Fake it. Just fake it. Like, fake it. You know, like I said, take these words, string them together, send it back to me. I don't care if you're not feeling it. Just pretend. And then I'll do the same for you if you ever need me to do that. Like, but sometimes you just have to fake it for your partner. Well, I've almost got caught by coworkers at work. When, sexting? Cause, yeah, well, not, I wasn't sexting. Were you taking pictures of your one. penis at your desk? You're supposed to go to the bathroom. No, for that. I would never do that. Um, I was, um, my phone, I don't have a smartphone, so when I open up, there's a text message. It'll just pop up at the top. Oh, yeah. And Jimmy sent me one, and I forget which coworker was, but it was kind of like right behind my shoulder, and that popped up, and I was like, ooh, and just dispelled it fast, mm-hmm. you know? I was yeah. like, whoa, there's a cock in there, and I don't want You need to a see. different phone, then. I know, but my plan isn't up until November. So. So. So I've got to wait until so. November to get a new phone. Unless something. How do you feel about sexting, Brian? Yeah, uh, I haven't done it much. I, it's fine. I usually just send back a smiley face. I'm oh, just kidding. You're never like. Oh, what, do you, what type of things I, do you say, Brian? Uh, I don't. You can don't really remember. devastate a woman with a bad response to sex. <laughs> I am not kidding. One of Sean and I's biggest fights ever was over sexting. Cause I was like, basically your response just made me feel like the bottom of somebody's shoe. And he's like, I'm sorry. I mean, like, he was on tour with his bros in a van. He was like, I'm in like the least sexy place on earth. I was like, I don't care. Talk about fucking my titties. Exactly. Really? <laughs> I didn't know girls like that. Yeah, I'll do it. I mean. Oh. I would just be afraid. It's like you're you're shaking a can of or a bottle of champagne like right at your face. <laughs> well, but you don't ever. Do y'all ever come on each other's faces? Um, do gay guys not intentionally? I like know uh, I broke up with somebody over that. Oh, we'll will we do that on occasion? I. I <laughs> There's. It was actually really Time hot. We replaced the coffee Nan normally drinks <laughs> with truth serum. <laughs> But there's this one really hot, hot, hot bartender at, um, at, what's that place called? What's the place called? The dance club? S4. S4, yeah. S4. And, um, I didn't really date him, but we hooked up a couple of times. And so we we're kind of like dating and he was really nice, but, but he was like, do you have any rules? And I said, I just don't like come on my face and then my hair. I just don't prefer it. It's like, okay. And so we were fooling around and he like aimed it like right at my face and I didn't call him after that. Cause I was so mad cause I like had to drive home with like come on my face and in well, my hair. And I was thinking of all the days I'm going to get touch it. pulled over. No, I left in like a huff. I was just like, this is bullshit. Out of here. I have more suffering. <laughs> we need to start videotaping these recordings because the funniest shit just happened. <laughs> Oh, and um, <laughs> should we move on from this? Uh, we should probably roll um, roll along here. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.